are imperishable rather than treasures on earth, which are perishable. And Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. We're going to be in Matthew 6. You can start making your way there. And we define treasure as love of money or wealth, love of honor, love of position, love of status, the love of one's work in an illegitimate sense, and much more. And no matter what it is or how small it is, if it is everything to you, that is your treasure. That is the thing for which you are living. It's become an idol. All right? And then Jesus concluded that section by saying, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Um, Matthew 6, 24. So this morning, uh, we're going to move away from worldliness as it relates to our treasure, which encompasses our wants, our desires, what we value, to worldliness as it relates to our daily needs and the cares of this world. And there are many people who may not be guilty of laying up treasures on earth, but they can still be very guilty of worldliness because they're always thinking about these things, these needs. They're anxious about them, and they dwell upon them constantly. That's what we're going to address this morning. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, and I'm going to read through verse 34, and then we'll go back and take a look in more detail. Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So the passage on treasures in heaven and today's passage on worry and anxiety are very closely related. And Jesus connects them with the word, therefore, which is the first of three times that he's going to do that in this passage. So we'll make note of that. Therefore. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
The King James Version says, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. And the word that's used in the original text uh, for anxious in the ESV or worry in the NASB or take no thought in the King James is a word that indicates something which divides or separates or distracts, distracts us. Remember back in verse 22 last time, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy in the King James, if your eye is single, we've made that point, your whole body will be full of light. We're to have a single focus, a single focus on God and his righteousness. We are not to be distracted. Worry and anxiety are distractions that keep us from that single focus. There's a familiar example um, would be the account of Jesus' interaction with Martha and Mary in Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, Martha was distracted with much serving. She was anxious, same Greek word, and troubled about many things. And Jesus said that one thing is necessary. But Martha's distraction and anxiety kept her from enjoying that one thing. And what Jesus is warning us against, both in the account of Martha and in the Sermon on the Mount, is the danger of being distracted from the main objective in life by anxiety over, over earthly, worldly things. By looking so much at them that we do not look at God. That's what he's concerned about. That's what he addresses here. So as he's done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the entire masterful sermon, Jesus lays out his general principle in the first verse, and then he builds upon it. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. His argument here is from the greater to the lesser. Okay, the greater to the lesser. God himself has created you in his own image. He's given you the breath of life. In him we live and move and have our being. The argument goes, um, Acts 17, 28, the argument goes, if God has done this greater thing, this greater thing, given you life and breath, will he not do the lesser thing, sustain you with food and drink? Is not life the greater thing more than food, the lesser thing? In the same way, he speaks about what we're going to wear. God has given you a body. Is not the body the greater thing more than clothing, right? 
He illustrates that point by pointing to nature, specifically to the birds of the air and to the lilies of the field. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 26. So rather than arguing from the greater to the lesser, he reverses it here. All right? He reverses it. He argues from the lesser to the greater. If God providentially cares for the birds of the air, will he not care that much more for the needs of his children who are made in his own image? The birds do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barn. Yet in God's providence, they are cared for. They are fed. Notice that God doesn't drop food into the bird's beak. It's not like our backyard, which has eight feeders all set, ready to go. (coughs) They still gather. Excuse me. Sorry, I got to have something in my throat. (coughs) They still gather, but everything they need is provided for them by the hand of God. Man's commanded by the Lord to work, but he is to rely upon God alone to give the increase. There's a subtle word that's used in verse 26 that I don't want us to miss, all right? So look closely at this. He says, look at the birds of the air, and he describes that, and he says, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father feeds them. God is the maker, creator, and sustainer of all things. He feeds the birds of the air, indeed all of creation, through his general providence. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But the birds are not the children of God. Jesus says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount was preached to Jesus' disciples, not to all of mankind. As we've gone through this series, we've emphasize that point. It's written to his disciples. The message is for those of us who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And when we began this series with the Beatitudes over two years ago, I had to go back and look, I called them the characteristics of the blessed, all right? The Beatitudes, the characteristics of the blessed. They were the characteristics that should be evident in one who is truly a child of God. They should be marked by being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, showing true humility, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, displaying mercy, being pure of heart, being a peacemaker, and being prepared to suffer persecution for righteousness' sake characteristics of the blessed. Earlier in this chapter, same chapter, when I preached on the Lord's Prayer, we began with the words, Our Father, and emphasized that it is only those who have been adopted into the family of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ who can rightly address God as Father. And if that's so, and it is, then the phrase, Your Heavenly Father feeds them takes on a great deal of significance. God feeds the birds of the air, but he is your 
Heavenly Father. How much more, this is Jesus' point, how much more will he care for one of his own children? At the end of the verse, he says, the obvious question, are you not of more value than they? Verse 26, and when you rightly see yourself as a child of God, you begin to understand the tremendous value and worth that you have in his eyes. He will care for your every need. He's promised to do so. Verse 27, Jesus addresses the futility of worry. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? And that seems clear enough in the English until we see that the word translated hour from the Greek is actually the word that means cubit. And we know that a cubit is a unit of measurement defined by the length of the arm from the elbow to the fingertip, roughly 18 inches. Unless you're using a royal cubit like we did for the arc, then it's 20.4. I don't know too many people who are anxious about adding 18 inches to their height unless they intend to take up a career in basketball. Couple that with the phrase span of life in the ESV or stature in the King James. So which is it? Are we worrying about adding 18 inches to our stature or height or adding a single hour to our span of life? The context should always drive our interpretation. Always. Never take a verse out of context. Jesus began by saying, do not be anxious about your life. The whole question from verse 25 through 32 is on sustaining life. Jesus says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Worrying is futility. With all that we do, With all of our tremendous efforts, with all of our worry and anxiety, is there anyone who can extend the span of their life by even a moment? By even a moment? Ultimately, our days are numbered by the sovereign will of God. The psalmist proclaimed, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 16. Verse 28, Jesus goes on to give us a second analogy that is uh, similar to the first. He says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Matthew 6, 28 and 29. Consider the lilies of the field or meditate on them. Consider at a deeper level something that we often take for granted. Consider the color, the form, the design, the texture, and the beauty of something as simple as a flower. Katie likes to take pictures of flowers. In fact, there is a directory somewhere on the internet 
of Katie taking pictures of pictures of Katie taking pictures of flowers. Um, we marvel at them. You know, we grow them, we we view them. We um, they're beautiful. Imagine a field of wildflowers and the awe as you behold God's design. Look at the marvel. Look at the beauty. Look at the perfection. Jesus says that Solomon, in all of his splendor, and if we go through the Old Testament, Solomon was well known for his splendor, was not arrayed like one of these. And he wasn't. He wasn't. But in the very next verse, don't miss this, very next verse, Jesus refers to the lilies of the field as grass. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Matthew 6.30. The beauty of flowers is passing and transient. They don't last very long. The moment we cut a flower, it begins to die. It begins the process of dying. And the exquisite beauty and perfection is here today, but it's gone by tomorrow. The grass is thrown. The grass that were once the lilies of the field. The grass is thrown into the fire, and it is no more. But man is not meant to die. Those who are in Christ Jesus have an eternal existence beyond death and the grave. And if God has made us for this, how much more, that's the question, the lesser to the greater, how much more will he care for our needs and clothe us in this lifetime? Consider the lilies of the field. How much more does your heavenly, your heavenly Father love you? End of verse 30. You want to look at this. Jesus summarizes his teaching up to this point. He tells us not to be anxious about our life, what we will eat or what we will drink, nor about our body, what we will put on. He tells us to look at the birds of the air, to consider the lilies of the field. If God provides for these, how much more, from the lesser to the greater, will he provide for his adopted children, who are not only created in his image, but are recreated into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. After all of that, he says, O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Don't miss that. Jesus slides that right into the middle of his argument, and it's so easy to miss if we don't slow down. Don't miss it. It's the hinge between everything he said to this point and everything that follows. It's the hinge. See, therein lies our problem when it comes to worry and anxiety. On the one hand, we have an intellectual problem. Jesus points to the birds, to the lilies of the field, and shows God's providential care. Do we not understand that our Father cares so much more for us and will provide for our ever need? That's the intellectual problem. The deeper issue, however, is with our faith. The deeper issue is with our faith. Notice that Jesus says little faith as opposed to no faith. 
Okay? He says, little faith, not no faith. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? He's speaking to those who have already come to him for salvation, which is through faith alone. He's speaking to those who have exercised saving faith in him. And therefore, they are children of God. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, he's not talking about the existence of faith, but of the sufficiency of it. Hear that again. He's not talking about the existence of faith, but of the sufficiency of it. The antidote for worry and anxiety is trust in God. The antidote for worry and anxiety is a living and active faith. Problem with many Christians is that their understanding of biblical faith begins and ends with salvation. Certainly, we come to Christ by God's grace through faith. But it doesn't stop there. It can't. It can't. Apostle Paul made it clear in Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, when he wrote, for in, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in Christ is more than a one-time event. It is a day-by-day surrender and trust that God is in control. It's an unwavering trust that the promises of God are true. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory, 2 Corinthians 1.20. I compare salvation and the Christian life to a marriage. That seems appropriate since Christ is the bridegroom and the church is His bride. Ephesians 5. The moment of salvation is the wedding. We come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Literally say, I do. And in that moment, our sins are imputed to Jesus, forgiven. And His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. The Father declares us justified, married. It's a once and forever declaration that cannot be broken or annulled, ever. But that's a moment in time. The rest of the Christian life is the marriage. It's the marriage. And it's to be lived out day by day as you walk together with Christ. Like a human marriage, there's a quality about it, right? Sometimes you're walking closely with your spouse and sometimes you aren't. In this case, however, you're walking with the perfect groom. If someone moves, it was you. The quality of the marriage is directly related to the degree by which we abide in Christ. John 15, 5. This is the process of sanctification and is lived through an ongoing and active faith. The discipleship class had often heard me say, this morning I I told them, I said, I've said this thousands of times, and Scott corrected me and said hundreds. Okay, all right. So, heard me say that I grieve, I grieve 
for Christians who don't have assurance of their faith. They're saved. I'm not questioning that. They are saved. But they're not living with the peace that God intends for them. The same is true for those who are deeply burdened by worry and anxiety. Christians who have saving faith only, but go no further, rob themselves of so much in this life. You're not meant to live a life that's controlled by worry and anxiety over what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what tomorrow will bring. In Christ, you are meant to live a life of trust and daily submission to Him. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we pray with an expectation and assurance that God will indeed answer that prayer. We need not worry. God will care for His children. Let's be clear. Um, For the unbeliever, worry and anxiety are understandable. Jesus' argument about the futility of worry is still true, all right? Still futile. But worry and anxiety about the future makes sense when there is no God and there are no promises that have been made, right? Yet for the Christian, worry and anxiety is completely, hear this, completely inconsistent with what they profess to believe. It betrays a little faith, not a lack of faith, a little faith, an insufficient faith, a faith that is not living and active, a faith that betrays a lack of trust in the Father's care. The problem with many Christians is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, but we don't actually believe what he says. We don't believe what he says. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. And yet we keep our problems and our worries to ourselves, and we're weighed down by them, and we're defeated, and we're oppressed by anxiety. The problem with little faith is that it doesn't take the words of Scripture as they are written and believe it and live it and apply it. I know there are all kinds of issues involved, some of them even medical. I get that. That said, I don't want us to miss the import of Jesus' words. O you of little faith. Look at his care for the birds of the air. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Notice he uses that same phrase, your father. Matthew 10, 29. Consider the lilies of the field. Behold their beauty. And if your heavenly father provides for these, how much more will he provide for you? One of his adopted children and a co-heir with Christ. Romans 8, 17. Trust in him for salvation. And for your daily needs. Rest in him. Have peace from worry and anxiety in him. Knowing that the promises of God are sure. Promises made to his children that are unbreakable. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. As we move on to verse 31, Jesus uh, begins with the second of his three therefores in this passage. He's building his logical argument, precept upon precept. So based upon everything that he said about the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, the loving care of your heavenly Father, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verses 31 to 33. As Christians, our lives should look very different from the Gentile unbeliever. Should be distinctive. Should be distinctive. The unbeliever asks, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? It makes sense for them to do so. And even though God still provides these things through his common grace, the unbeliever cannot rest in promises made or see promises kept. They seek after these things. But we can rest in the assurance that God will take care of the needs of his children. He's promised to do so. Worry, anxiety, uncertainty defines the unbeliever. But it should not define a child of God, though often it does. It should not define a child of God who is living and active and abiding faith in Christ. Not only that, Jesus emphasizes that your heavenly Father, there's that phrase again, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Right? What a comfort that is. What a comfort it should be. No matter what your need is, whether it's big or small, God knows. God knows. God knows all things, and He knows His children intimately. He knows your thoughts. He knows the motivation of your heart, and he knows your every need. Nothing can happen to us apart from God's sovereign will. I've said this before in a message, but it just, Lord just brought it to mind. There was a night many, many, many years ago, probably almost 25 years ago, that my mom almost died. There was a, a section of her colon twisted, died, and started pouring poison into her system. And uh, she survived that, still is today. Um, but she was in the hospital somewhere between 35 and 45 days. And uh, that night at 3 in the morning, um, my, uh, we had a lot of people with us at 3 in the morning, most of them, there was a couple of friends of mine, but there were numbers of guys who were associated with my dad from Alcoholics Anonymous. And while my mom was on the operating table, and they don't expect her to come off of it, these men were reminding my dad of what he had taught them that very week. And, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they have their big book, right? And there's a chapter towards the end of the big book on acceptance. 
And in that chapter is the best definition of God's sovereignty that I've ever heard. Um, My dad would not have used that word because he wouldn't have known that word. But he said, uh, but in that big book, and what my dad had taught these men was nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. All right? God is sovereign. God knows you. God knows his children. He knows who is his. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his sovereign will. He knows, he cares, and he is in control. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, Hebrews 4.13. The contrast to the unbelieving Gentile is seen in the all-important verse 33, where Jesus provides the conclusion to his argument. This is the last song that we sang, and uh, the cure for anxiety. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Earlier in the message, I defined the word used for anxiety as something that distracts us from our main focus. We look together at the account of Martha and how she was distracted with much serving, anxious and troubled with many things. And Jesus told her that one thing is necessary. Finally, we look back at verse 22, which spoke of the healthy eye, or in the King James Version, the single eye. The point being that we should have a single focus. And to that, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The word seek has the meaning of seeking earnestly, seeking intensely, living for it. He adds to that the word first. Seek first, which means above everything else, with the highest priority. Or as Jesus said to Martha, one thing is necessary. One thing. This is that one thing. This is that one thing. One of the defining characteristics of a true disciple taken from the Beatitudes in chapter 5 is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, Matthew 5, verse 6. And if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else seems to fall into place. Everything else seems to fall into place. Jesus adds, adds, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 33b, all the things that you worry about, all of the things that cause you anxiety, food, clothing, your job, your family, your health, the list is endless. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Meaning that God is in control and he will care for your every need. I feel a need here to say, this is not the health and wealth gospel. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about trust in God. God knows what is best. 
God is always working for your good. You can be assured that He is always working for your good and for His glory. And as you focus on the one thing, as you focus on the kingdom and His righteousness, you can trust that your needs are in His hands. Theologian A.W. Pink said, the best antidote for anxiety is frequent meditation upon God's goodness, power, and sufficiency. Nothing is too big and nothing is too little to spread before and cast upon the Lord. To that, let me add a charge from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, put God, His glory, and the coming of His kingdom And your relationship to Him, your nearness to Him, and your holiness in the central position. And you have, and hear this, this is so awesome, and you have the pledged Word of God Himself through the lips of His Son that all these other things, as they are necessary for your well-being in this life and the world, shall be added unto you. That is the way to increase your faith by trusting in Him and resting in that assurance. Verse 34. Jesus repeats His final therefore, concluding concluding His flow of thought. He says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus was clear when He said in John 16.33, In the world, you will have tribulation, right? Tony wrote an awesome song about that this week. I I wanted to tie it to the message. It's a little bit different message, but it's consistent. It's totally consistent. Um, (laughs) So, in the world, you will have tribulation. It's a fact of life. It's the human condition. And the problem with tribulation is that it comes at us day after day after day. It doesn't stop, and it takes many forms. It's easy to get bogged down and overwhelmed by worry about the future. Worry has an active imagination, and it can vision all sorts of scenarios and possibilities. It can transport you into the future to a place where you don't need to be. The battle is always for the Christian life is in our mind. I recall a season. I recall a season in my own life many years ago where I was overwhelmed and crippled by anxiety for a period of several years. I can't overstate this. Literally every waking moment at home, at work, with my family, was filled with thoughts of the future and made up conversations in my head. It was constant. It was overwhelming. It actually got so bad that I tried to pray, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't even pray. But in that moment, the Lord brought to my mind the Scripture from Romans 8.26. 
I can tell you exactly where I was. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And I prayed, Lord, I can't pray, but I can sit in Your presence. And as I did, the Holy Spirit interceded for me, just as God had promised. And a peace came over me that I had not experienced in years. I'm not going to tell you that the anxiety disappeared. It did not. It definitely came back. But that moment, that moment was the first step towards victory over worry and anxiety. And I can tell you, not only on that issue, but in life. You know, a lot of times, you know, when I have the opportunity to preach, it's, it's more convicting for me than anything else, okay? This is one It's like, I feel pretty good about this. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I feel pretty good about this because he's given me that experience. I lived through it, came out on the other end, and it affects how I look at life. Right? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6.33. Today has enough trouble of its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Live in the present. When it comes to worry and anxiety, live in the present. Forget yesterday. And do not be anxious for, about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Trust in him for your daily needs. Walk closely with him day by day. Face today's troubles head on. We're still to face it. We're still to work. We're still to deal with life. But we do it in his strength. And we entrust an uncertain future into his care. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we marvel at your tremendous love for us. Father, that in your providence you care for all of your creation, the birds, the flowers, and so much more. But you are our Heavenly Father, and Father, your love for us knows no bounds. And you have promised, Lord, that you would care for our needs. It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't apply. It doesn't mean that we don't live life to the best of our ability. But in all of that, we trust your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to provide for our every need, our every worry. Lord, the scripture focuses primarily on food and drink and clothing, but our worries and our anxieties are so much greater than that. We worry about our families. We worry about our friends. We worry about our jobs. We worry about health issues, health of a loved one, how we're going to care for the needs of tomorrow. Lord, we don't need to live that way. We're not meant to live that way. 
We are meant to live a victorious life in you. And that again, that's not a, a health and wealth claim. That is the reality that you are in control and that you have our best needs at heart. And whatever you do with that is good. And we give you the praise and the glory for that. And we pray that you would teach us, Lord, how to live that life day by day with an assurance that you are in control and with the faith, Lord, that you will supply those needs. Lord, we, we, uh, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us grow in our faith, not only to come to you in salvation, but to live the Christian life in you, growing in holiness, growing in trust, Lord, so that you might be glorified in it all. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in his peace.